everybody. It's good to see everyone here today. Man, I'm feeling the spirit of the Lord, so I know that he has a good word for you. And uh, I'm excited about this series that we're, that we're in now, the second week, just looking at the foundations of our faith, that, that God has a plan for everyone who calls on his name, for every son or daughter of of God, everyone who trusts in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Together, we have a purpose as the church to be the light and hope of the world. We have the greatest message anyone could ever hear, which is God loves you. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be condemned, but have everlasting life. That is the greatest message anyone could hear, brings the greatest hope that anyone could enjoy in their lives. And so we, we want to build on that foundation because I believe God wants to take each person deeper into the relationship with God to grow their relationship so they can become everything he desires for them to be in Christ Jesus. God's will isn't for you to stay in one place, to stay stagnant or to not grow. He wants you to grow and produce lots and lots of spiritual fruit. And so we're going over these foundational topics to remind ourselves, those of you that have been Christians for a long time, we kind of get away from these foundational things and we forget about what the core of our faith is. But then also for those of you that might be new to faith, or maybe you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you gave God your heart. You said, Jesus, I'm going to go all in with you. I'm going to turn away from my sin. I'm going to trust in you, and I'm going to trust you for the rest of my life. And you've never made that decision. There are things that come along with the Christian faith. I was just in a time of prayer before even coming out here, just thinking how amazing and how many benefits there are to being a child of God. How incredible it is. And that if we just make that decision from turning away, from living for ourselves, making ourselves the gods of our own life, and letting Jesus be Lord and Savior. How beautiful of a life it is. And this is what he desires for us. And maybe you're here and you've never made that decision. Today, you can make that decision and begin to enjoy the very thing God has created you to enjoy. And that begins with a relationship with him. It begins with finding purpose and meaning and the many, many other benefits. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at repentance and faith. Last week, we looked at baptism. We had Baptism Sunday, and three of our church family went all in with Jesus and said, I'm a child of God, and we baptized them. It was such a great day of celebration. We had more food than we could eat, and it was a lot of fun. And so I, I thank you for those that participated and came out for that. Uh, but today we're going to kind of look at repentance and faith. And, and the way we believe at Vertical Life Church is that baptism essentially is believer's baptism. You trust in Christ and then you get baptized to identify yourself 
as a child of God. And so we talked about that last week. And so we're kind of flip-flopped. We're kind of out of order here. But the foundation, nonetheless, will tie in together as we look at repentance and faith. I think for most of us, when we think of the word repentance or repent, I think we instantly get an image in our minds of some wackadoo crazy people on the side of the road holding banners, you know, talking about repent for the end is near. Kind of like this. Have you seen this guy on the news or maybe in, in a movie? You, you see people like this protesting, repent, repent. You know, the end of the world is coming. At the end of 2012, whenever supposedly the Mayans had predicted the end of the world, we saw a lot of these memes beginning to come around and uh, different things. We, we look at this word, and when we hear it, we instantly kind of feel uh, maybe that we're being rubbed the wrong way, I think. Because it's a word that's used to talk about judgment and condemnation. It's a harsh word that people tend to sling around whenever they believe someone is in the wrong or maybe not living righteously. But the word repentance is not a harsh word, nor is it condemning. It is actually a word that, that means something that is actually very beneficial to a believer in Jesus Christ. And uh, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, this is kind of our, our series text, Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. Repentance is not a bad thing. It's actually one of the essential things to the Christian life. It is one of the essential elements to salvation, the salvation of our souls. It's a foundational element to our entire belief system. And in, uh, in, when we look at this word, we can see through Scripture that without repentance, the very salvation of our souls cannot even occur. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 he begins to preach this at the start of his ministry. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The core message of Christ, even though he did many wonderful things, and yes, he displayed the very love of God and heart of God as he was ministering on the earth, the core of his message was a message of repentance. But repentance alone is not enough. Jesus alludes to it here in his passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Paul, Paul the Apostle writes to the church of Ephesus, God saved you by his grace when you what? What's that say? When you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift of God. So repentance, even though that's a work that we do, it's a decision that we make. We can't get to heaven alone just by choosing to live better, choosing to do better things. It requires also the second component, which is faith. And we receive salvation when we trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, the very work that he did, and we make him, we give him the lordship over our hearts, over our lives. We declare him as Lord and Savior, and then we initiate that belief with repentance, which is the process by which we identify the sinful things in our lives that he gave his life to cleanse us from, and we put those sinful things to death so that we can live a God-glorifying life. Uh, we accept by faith 
the payment Jesus made on our behalf, and then we choose to live new lives free from sin because of his resurrection. Now, in our culture and in our world, and really back in the biblical times, there was kind of this reality that even early Christians were dealing with. Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he alludes to a thing called worldly sorrow. Now, whenever we talk about repentance, we talk about sin, often people begin to think in their minds about all the ways they don't measure up, right? Romans 3.23 says, everyone has sinned and everyone's fallen short. There's not a person in here that when comparison to God doesn't kind of fall on the meter, right? Where we all have areas in our lives we fall short. None of us are good enough. There's only one who is good, and that is God. So we begin to think about that. When we start thinking about our sin and the ways we've made mistakes, we start feeling sorrowful over those things. And and oftentimes we use the word conviction. We start getting convicted about the way our life doesn't match the perfection or holiness of God. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says that, that feeling bad, that sorrow, that there's really two types. There's a worldly sorrow. It says that it, it's this feeling of guilt or, or sorrow for what you've done, but it does not result in a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of action. You feel bad, you feel judged, you feel condemned, but you continue to do the very same things you did before you had this revelation. That kind of sorrow, it lacks repentance and results in spiritual death. So without repentance, the faith or belief a person has is not a life-giving faith. There will be people, maybe you're here today, maybe you'll run into people who they claim to be Christians. I, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But their life lacks repentance. It lacks the, the very essential element of the salvation process. Their faith is not a true faith. It is a false faith. To claim Jesus and sin cannot coexist. If you really believe what you say you believe, that belief will have an effect on your life. That's why our faith, our belief, is not just repentance. It's not just faith. It's both at the same time. Faith gives birth to repentance. A person that says they have faith and doesn't repent is not a believer. A person that says Jesus is Lord but doesn't live as if he is Lord is not a believer. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. Again, none of us will achieve perfection in this life. But what it does mean is there will be a dramatic change in your life when Jesus is Lord. The prophet Amos wrote in his book in the Old Testament, Amos chapter 3, verse 3, one of my favorite verses. I use it all the time. In Amos 3, 3, it says, can two people walk in the same direction and not be in agreement? It's a rhetorical question. Well, if you think about it, if you're walking down the sidewalk with somebody and you're walking in the same direction, you're agreeing together the direction that you are heading, right? So if you think about that that word picture, repent, or the word repent literally just means very simply to change your mind or go another direction. So if you think about a spectrum, you have sin on one side, you have Jesus on the other, you cannot walk in agreement with sin and head in the, the way of Christ at the same time. You cannot pursue sin and a life of sin and pursue Jesus at the same time. It doesn't work. It's conflicting. In order to make Jesus Lord and live a life for his honor and glory, you have to say, I'm going to change my mind from pursuing sin, and I'm going to turn and I'm going to pursue a life lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. Many of us, when 
again, when we think of repentance and we know what, that there are sins that we wrestle with, and, and I think we can all think of what the big sins are, right? We start with the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't steal. What else? What are some of the big sins? Don't, don't lie, don't adultery, honor, you know, don't, don't, don't commit these things. Immorality, there's sexual immorality. And we're really good at identifying what those big sins are. And so when we look at our lives and we say, huh, I don't got any of the big sins, we kind of feel like, well, I don't have anything to repent of. Uh, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. But the issue is here in Hebrews 6.1, when the writer of Hebrews says evil deeds, it's not just talking about the big sins in our lives. The word evil deeds literally means dead works. Somebody say dead works. I just want to make sure you're tracking with me. The word dead works literally means dead works, works with no life in them, works that have no life. In 1 Corinthians 3, 13 and 14, Paul, as he's writing to the church of Corinth, this is what he says about each and every one of us. He likens us to builders who are building a building or a structure. He says this, on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. Isn't it amazing to know that God is going to reward you in heaven? When you stand before your heavenly Father, because you're in Christ, if you're a Christian and you're in Christ, when you stand before Jesus, it's not judgment that you're going to receive. It's reward. God is going to lavishly reward you because of what you've done. But here is the issue with the reward. Everything we do is going to be tried by fire. Everything. The Bible even says that we'll give an account for every idle word we speak. We're going to stand before God, and our life is going to play before us like a movie, and we're going to have to justify everything that we have done. We're going to give an account for our lives. And the deal with dead works, even though none of us will be perfect until Jesus comes back and, and gives us the glorified body, the deal with dead works is that dead works do not survive living fire. Dead works do not survive living fire. Because those dead works that we do out of our sinful nature, they're born out of this inherent self-centeredness, selfishness that was given to us when we were born into this sinful nature. And even though some of the works that we do aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, if they are motivated behind that sinful nature, it becomes a dead work. And to, to think about this in, in a more practical way, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 9, we won't read it, but you can read it later. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, he's talking about the sacrifice of Christ and everything Jesus has come to accomplish. In Hebrews 9, 14, he likens the dead works to even religious activity. I mean, if you think about it, like, why, why would dead works be related to religious activity? How could God or the, the, the Holy Spirit writing the Scripture say the things we do for God could also be sin or dead works? Well, he says in Hebrews 9, 14, he says, Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciousness from sinful deeds or dead works, so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Anything we do, religious or not, whether it's for God or for not, that's not born out of a heart that's burning to please the Lord, 
Anything that's not born out of relationship, but is religious to the point that it makes us feel spiritual or feeds our pride or our sinful nature, is not a righteous work, but it's a dead work. And, it, and, and this is why religion is a killer to true, authentic faith and why I can't stand religion. Because what religion does, it says, here's your checklist. If you do A, B, C, D, E, and F, then you're good with God. But what God says is, no one's good with me apart from Jesus Christ. And so when we're doing these works and we're saying, I'm going to church, I'm doing all of these things, and it's apart from relationship. We're saying, I'm, I'm doing this because of the love I have for God, not because it makes me feel spiritual or makes me feel righteous. Then our dead work or righteous works will also become dead works. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 even speaks of this when he says, there'll be those who stand before me on judgment day who will proclaim that they've done many righteous things, many miraculous things, many powerful things. But on that day, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I had no relationship with you. So even the things that are religious in nature are spiritual in nature. Apart from a relationship with Christ, don't cut it. They are sin. We are to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and let his, that love for him overflow in our lives to touch other people. And anything we do, whether spiritual or not, that doesn't, is not born out of that love can literally is considered a dead work. And, and here's the unique thing about believers in Christ, about those who call on the name of Jesus, is that God's will for us is that his glory and his power would be on display in our lives. Think about the, the prayer that Jesus prayed. It's often called the Lord's Prayer. We could probably quote it from heart. But Jesus said something specific. He said, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, on earth as what? It is in heaven, right? So here he's, he's giving this description of how we should pray, but he keys into something very unique and specific. And this is what we need to wrap our minds around as we're looking at repentance and faith and what the life of a believer is supposed to look like. Because there is something that he's keying us into in this prayer about the kingdom of God coming and his willing being done on earth as it is in heaven. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, Paul the Apostle is writing to the church of Ephesus, and he says something that I don't think many of us really grasp the concept of. In verse 4, he begins by saying, God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ. And what's that say? And he seated us with him where? In the heavenly realms. Because we are united with Christ. If you think of a married couple, when a married couple comes together in intimacy, their bodies don't just become one, but so do their soul. So do their spirit. When you give Christ your heart, and the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and you become born again. Your spirit becomes one with Christ's spirit. And when he ascended to heaven, he sat at the right hand of power and authority at the, with the Father. And everyone who calls on the name of Christ, your spirit has now been united with Christ, and you too are seated at the right hand of God in the place of power and authority. So though our bodies live here on earth, our soul, our mind lives here on earth, our spirit is in heaven Right now, with Christ, we live in two places 
simultaneously, physically on earth and spiritually in heaven. This is why Jesus said, pray that the kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because every believer who's called on the name of Christ is now the stairway, is the conduit for God's glory, his will to go from heaven down to earth. The purpose for our existence, the reason why we're, we're, we're saved, and he doesn't just translate us to heaven and remove us from this broken world, is because now we exist as the conduit for his will to come from heaven down to earth, for us to bring about the kingdom here. Paul, as he's writing to the Philippians in Philippians 3.20, he says, We are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Again, when we were adopted into the family of God, when we placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we stopped being citizens and orphans in this world. Realize that the difficulties we experience, the heartache that we have naturally is because when we're born into this world, we're born separated from our true father. We're born separated. We're born broken. And we, all of us have daddy issues because we're separated from our heavenly father. But through Christ Jesus, we're reconciled to our Father. We're adopted into the heavenly family. We stop being citizens of this earth, which is under the power and influence of the enemy. And we become citizens of heaven, seated with and under the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Our identity now comes from above and not below. This is why what the devil says about you doesn't stand. You're not worthless. You're not used. You're not broken. You are priceless. Your value comes from the price someone paid for you, and Jesus gave his life. You're invaluable. You are healed. You are whole. Everything that we identify ourselves with comes from above and not below. And this is so important because in light of this truth of where our true identity comes from, Paul, to the church of Philippi in Philippians 1.27, he says, above all, which means above everything else I've told you, above all the important things in this letter, it says you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. That word good news is the gospel. The word gospel means good news. The message of Christ, what he did for us on the cross, he's saying live as a citizen of heaven so that your life reflects the power and beauty and truth of God's good news, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Live in a way that your life reflects the truth, that your life is a display or is a, is a mirror of what God can do in a life that he transforms through faith in the Son of God. Live in a way that the kingdom of God can be unleashed in your life. Let your identity as a citizen of heaven influence how you think, how you feel, how you believe in what you do. He continues, he says, Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I'll know that you're standing together with one spirit, one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. If we are living as a citizen of heaven, we will not be caught up in dead works. We're not going to be caught up giving ourselves over to our sinful nature because we'll be living to unleash the kingdom, to making his will not just done in heaven, but also accomplished here on the earth. We have sin issues. We have dead work issues because we have identity issues. 
Proverbs 23, 7, Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, he says, as a man thinketh, so is he. Well, thinketh that first minute. As a man thinketh, so is he. That means how you view yourself, what you think about yourself, will determine how you live. If you think you're broken, you're going to live broken. If you think that you're not good enough, you're not going to try. If you think you can't, you won't, right? As you think, so you will be. If you think like you're a citizen of earth, you're going to live as a citizen of the earth. But if you believe and you think you are a citizen of heaven, you recognize what that means and that you have the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead living within you, that that is going to be on display in your life. Your life will be a living testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rather than striving for dead works that will burn in the fire, we'll be striving for works of righteousness that bring life into the world and that last for eternity. But we're seeing trends and patterns in the world today among Christians that reveal that more and more people are choosing to live after their identity that they were born into in this world rather than their identity in Christ. And so when you look at the way they live, it's indistinguishable from the others that are around them that are already on their way to hell. So many who profess Christ, they claim to be a Christian, but their lives lack repentance of sin and of dead works, and it reveals a lack of genuine faith in the gospel message and in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And so in our, in our main text we're going to look at here, we're going to break it down uh, verse by verse. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, we're just going to look at these verses and, and, and comment, and then we'll come to a close. But we're going to look at what Peter says is the difference between a true believer in Christ and a godless person. And what should be on display in the life of a believer and not on display in the life of a believer in Jesus. So we can identify maybe some areas in our lives we have still continued the patterns of sin and living for dead works and striving for dead works that don't live on into eternity. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Peter says this. He says, So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. How many of you want to be finished with sin? Any, can I get a hand raised? Yeah, there, me too. I mean, there are times like I really get in the flesh, and rather than praying to God, I'm really whining to God. Anybody like have a, more of a whine life than a prayer life? That, that's me. And I'm just like, God, it would be so much easier to honor you if I didn't have this sin stuff always hanging around. You know, it'd be so much easier to please you, to, to live for you. It'd be easier to be married if I didn't have the sin nature, you know, coming out all the time. And Paul the Apostle even said in Romans 7, the things that I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. This is this tug of war back and forth between what we should be and what we want to be. You know, that Peter says here that the ability to be done with sin is not just possible on the other side when Jesus comes back, and what a wonderful day that will be when Jesus returns and all this brokenness and mess is over and done with. I mean, the day where we actually live without sin, I can't even like, think about what that would be like. How to live and not have a selfish thought throughout the day. I mean, I cannot even fathom that. 
But Peter says that the ability to be done with sin is not just possible when Jesus returns, but it becomes possible when you suffer the way Christ has suffered. That if you suffer the way Jesus has suffered, when you give your life for the glory of God, in other words, when you get to the point that your physical well-being means nothing to you and compared to how much living for God's honor and glory and the gospel message matters to you, at that point, you will be done with sin. And Jesus gave it all. He gave everything. When you're not just able, but you're ready and willing to suffer physically for Christ, then the power of sin won't be able to draw you into dead works or have any sway. Because not even your natural desire for survival that's embedded into your created being will even be powerful enough to overcome the love you have for the Lord and your desire to honor Him with all that you are. And I think of that reality and think about how weak is my faith because I'm nowhere near. I would hope to be. But I look at people today that I believe are on the cusp of being done with sin in this life, like the missionaries from China or the Chinese Christians. If you do any study about the Chinese missionaries or Chinese Christians, I'd invite you to do so. It's completely humbling about what they're going through. It is only permissible to be a Christian in China if you attend the the sanctioned churches of the government. So there's only a handful of churches that are permitted to exist, and they're controlled and operated by government uh, people. They're appointed by the government. Every other Christian in China, and there's millions upon millions of them, are hiding for their lives because of fear of persecution. And there are Chinese seminaries, places where training centers, where they train Christian leaders, pastors, and teachers to, to plant churches and to continue the work of the gospel that are completely under wraps. They're unknown. They're top secret. And, and Christians that in the Chinese culture, in the, the country of China, that they go to these places, they surrender for two to three years to go to these compounds and never leave. They can't leave because of fear of the government finding out of what's going on. And they train and they sacrifice and they live the, these like mediocre, like very simple lives, training for the gospel, learning about Christ, seeking to do His will. And then when they graduate, they more, the, the, the high percentage of them travel to the Middle East to give the gospel knowing full and well they're going to give their lives for the sake of their faith. And when I think about these Christians and I look at my faith and what I'm willing to do, I am completely humbled. And what we look at in this American culture as extreme faith like that is actually the normal Christian life we read about in the Bible. That's normal. We have come to a place in our culture where we are so married to the idolatry of comfort, the idol of comfort and safety and security, that when we're asked to even step out in the smallest ways in faith, we get feared, we fearful, we clam up, and we shut down. What we call extreme faith, the Bible calls normal faith. And that normal faith, getting to the point where you've put the sinful nature to death, you put away dead works to give all to Christ. It might like, look like giving your life to honor the Lord the way the Chinese missionaries are. It might look like enduring a physical infirmity, suffering in your body, and not receiving the healing so that God's grace and power can be revealed in your suffering. 
There are many ways that we can sacrifice for Christ, allowing God's glory to be on display in our lives, suffering to preach the power and grace and faith that we have in Christ through our lives and maybe even through our death. What we have to realize in our time and in our day that God is both the God of the living and the dead. And sometimes he works miracles to extend life and bring an abundant life, but sometimes he calls on some to give them their lives so that his glory can go on and the gospel can expand and the kingdom can come. And see, this is what repentance really is all about. It's not about religious works so that God can be happy with us. If you're in Christ, you're already pleasing the Lord. If you're in Christ, God is already happy with you. If you have a relationship with God, God loves you beyond anything words can describe. What repentance is about, it's about turning away from the life we're born into to embrace the life we are destined for in eternity. The 70 to 80 years we get on this earth is not what life is all about. It's about the infinite span of time that we will have living with God forever and forever and forever. That is what life is is all about. This doesn't mean God has called us all to give all and sacrifice all all the time to live as paupers or become martyrs. He's a good father who loves to give good things to his kids, things we don't deserve. Just waking up in this nation is something we don't deserve. You could be waking up in China, but you're here in America. There are things that we take for granted every day, and those are gifts from God. The Bible says every good gift we have comes from the Lord. So we're not all called to give our lives, but we are all called to sacrifice, to live on purpose, and to leverage our blessings and the things that God has given us for kingdom impact, to submit humbly to whatever path God takes us on on our journey to fill his purpose in our lives as a witness of the gospel. You know, Paul the Apostle was the greatest missionary we ever, we've ever known, and he was a tent maker. He, had, he was a business owner. And he didn't use his money to pad his 401k. He used his money to live on and to fund his ministry, to get the gospel out. And in his life, we can see what a citizen of heaven really does. A citizen of heaven, one whose identity is in heaven, rooted in heaven and not rooted in earth, is a person who puts on Christ and displays Christ everywhere we go. We put Christ first in our decisions. We put Christ first in our goals, our plans, in our dreams. To repent really means to have the same attitude Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his crucifixion where he's crying out to God, sweating drops of blood, and he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Look what Peter continues to say about being dead to sin and repenting from dead works in verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires. When you give yourself, when you uh, give yourself fully to the Lord, you won't spend the rest of your life chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. How many of you are anxious to do the will of God? Or how many of us are hesitant, fearful, and ashamed to do the will of God? He says, when you have suffered, when you have put to death the sinful nature, 
You will have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality, their lust, their feasting, their drunkenness, and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. This isn't to condemn or cast anybody, but there are things that get in in the way of what God wants to bring about in our lives, the good things he wants to do. And many of us, and I've been guilty of this in my own life, many of us, we live as believers and citizens of heaven. We live vicariously through the godless people in our our culture, and we worship the same idols they worship as we worship them and give our tireless devotion to their shows, their programs, their, their trends, their things that they say that we should be investing ourselves in and emotionally connected to, and we allow the world to dominate our culture, to dominate our schedule, to inform our decisions, our goals, our priorities, from relationships to how we make up the family, so on and so on. That our calendars are often week to week governed by these idols that, that the people in our culture worship because we're worshiping them as they worship these idols. And yet, it, the last statistics, most people have a hard time making it consecutively week after week to church services. We have Christians who will devote ourselves to that program, that show, to that movie that's coming out to that new Apple Watch or whatever, and we'll, we'll sacrifice, we'll invest hundreds of dollars, sometimes thousands of dollars in things that when the f- living fire purges the works of the world will not last into eternity, but most Christians have not even led a person to Christ within the last year. Most believers haven't even shared their testimony or shared the gospel with another person in the last five years. And we look at our lives, we wonder why the church overall Cross denominations is in decline is because we don't have Christians who are repenting because of their faith. We have Christians who are living like godless people in the world. And our focus is not on heavenly things. It's on earthly things. Verse 4, he continues. He says, of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into flood, the flood of wild and destructive things that they do. So they slander you. As a citizen of heaven, you're not going to be accepted by the world. You're going to be rejected by the world because your life is not the same as their life. You're not going to be doing what they do. But in this day and age in the Christian culture uh, that we see, especially on social media, we see that we're trying so hard not to be offensive, to blend in, that no one knows who we truly are and what Jesus actually desires for the life of people who call themselves believers. We fear being judged by man, being judged by the world, and so we live ashamed of who our Savior is as opposed to proudly proclaiming who our Savior is and proudly proclaiming what he can do in the life of those who choose to trust in the gospel message that Jesus died and rose again and can transform a life that puts their faith in him. And amazing miracles that can happen when you live sold out for Christ. A citizen of heaven will be mocked, betrayed, because you will not be accepted by the world. But you know what? That's okay, because this world is not our home. Heaven is our home. We're just passing through. And our goal is to take as many people to heaven with us as we can. Verse 5, he says, remember that they, those that reject you, those that scorn you, those that mock you, those that are still in the world, they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. 
You're not going to face the judgment of God. You're going to face the reward of God. But there are those who are going to face the judgment of God. How dare we not tell them so they can avoid the judgment? So this is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. This is why we exist as believers in Christ to be living examples of the gospel and proclaim the gospel. So though there are people who are destined to die like all people, to stand before the judgment that they can now live through God in the Spirit. You've been saved, you've been set free, you've been left here on the earth. God didn't just take you to heaven when you believed because he has a people, he has a person for you to encounter so that you can lead them to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed so that you can influence your sphere of influence for the kingdom of God, not to blend in, but through love and the power of the Spirit to testify to those who are destined for judgment how they too can be saved. If we're not repentant of our obsession with dead works and sin, how will the world ever see a purpose or a need for trusting in Jesus Christ? The thing we need to know about godless people is that godless people are not just the evil people we hear about. It's not Osama bin Laden, who's godless, or Hitler, these people we would point to as being the evil people. We like these words godless to really paint a bad picture about people. Godless people are just simply people that have no relationship with Jesus Christ. You know godless people in your life. There are people in your life that seem to be really good people. They care, they're they're kind, they're generous. But if they don't have Christ, they're godless. They're godless. And the struggle is that we have living in this day and time is not living like the godless, but by living by faith in our new identity in Christ. There are many desires that we chase that are not necessarily evil in our own minds. But because of the way we follow the world and how we obsess and strive for these things, they become a distraction from the purpose and plan that God has for our lives. So it's important as repentant and faithful people that we are evaluating our attitudes and behaviors that feed our sinful nature, that produce dead works in our lives so that we can repent and live for the glory of God so that he can use us in a powerful way in this world. And there are really three things I want to look at that differentiate between godless people and godly people. As we're looking at this life and the difference between a true believer who's repentant because of their faith in Christ and those who live as if God doesn't exist. So how do godless people live? There's really kind of three categories. The first thing we see in this passage in Peter is godless people live for wealth and selfish gain. The stature, status security in their finances, their popularity, their social media status, that they seek houses and toys, electronics, vacations, nice cars, that the purpose of their life is to gain, to gain, to gain, and to gain. The second way godless people live is for pleasure. This is any and anything that can feed my flesh, make me feel good from sexual encounters to relationships, highs and entertainment, experiences, and the like. They live from one pleasurable experience to another. And number three, they live for the good time, the party life. This is escapism, drunkenness, drugs, alcohol, anything that will numb the stress and the brokenness of life to bring temporary relief or joy. Uniting and finding identity in 
purpose in other broken people who are living the same way so I don't have to feel bad about the things that I do. This is how godless people live. How do godly people live? Well, we also, number one, live for wealth. But not earthly treasure. We live for heavenly treasure. And the thing that God prizes more than anything else are the souls of other people. We live to bankrupt hell and to fill heaven's treasury. That's why we exist. And we recognize that there are blessings and riches in heaven. And we seek those types of wealth. It's not wrong to have a nice car or a nice house, but that's not the focus of our lives. We can enjoy God's blessings, but the focus of our life is heavenly treasure because we recognize our security is found in God. A car is going to break down, a house could burn down, but our treasure in heaven will never be corrupted. We also, godly people, live for pleasure. But we recognize that the truest satisfaction can only be found in God, in a relationship with God, through the Holy Spirit. And so we seek our satisfaction in communing with God through worship together, through studying the Word of God and letting Him speak to us, through ministering through the gifts of the Spirit and drawing close to His heart and reaching out to other people. We find our fulfillment in the one who was cre- created us to be fully fulfilled in him. And number three, we, fought, we also live for a good time. Fellowshipping with other believers is a great time. You don't think stuffing your belly full of fried chicken on baptism Sunday wasn't fun. It was fun. But you know what's better than that? Living through the power of the Holy Spirit and watching the Spirit unleash the kingdom into the people we come across. There's no greater joy, no greater high or experience that I've had in my own life than to seeing God use me to bring about a miracle in somebody else's life. Just the other day, my wife and I, and I don't share testimonies to make anything about myself. I share them to inspire you and what God can do through your life. Just the other day, my wife and I were in line at the grocery store, and this young, pregnant girl who looked like she was having a bad day, her card wouldn't work. And she had like 80-some dollars worth of groceries, and her card wouldn't work. And, and she had to like stand off to the side and, and, you know, kind of embarrassing moment. We've all probably been there. It's kind of embarrassing, and God said, you take care of it. And so, thankfully, that we have a church that's generous, we took care of that bill. And the lady behind the counter starts breaking down. The person behind us starts getting emotional. And I didn't even make a big deal about it. I just said, I'll take care of it, you know, and then I told the girl that she could go. But that one moment meant so much to the people around us. And I didn't even expect for that to happen. But we live for that stuff. We live to let God's love encounter and impact people in small ways and in big ways. When you pray for someone who's sick, who's been struggling with a debilitating illness or, or, or issue, and God heals it, and what happens in their life, I mean, you can't put a price tag on that. When someone who's lost, who recognizes their sinfulness and that they need a relationship with God to be saved, and you get to lead them in the prayer that changes their eternity, you can't put a price tag on that. Talk about a good time. This is what we live for as the church of Jesus Christ. And because we live in this world, there will always be a tug of war between the flesh and the spirit, between heaven and earth until Jesus returns. But repentance is this process of leaving the earth behind and putting heaven in full focus. It's about allowing the faith that we cling to, the conviction that what God says is true, regardless of our doubts and our experiences, to 
propel us, motivate us to work out our fear or our salvation in fear and trembling as we ask the Spirit to identify anything in our lives, to point out what's not in agreement with God's will for our lives, and to put those motives, those actions, those behaviors to death. And the reason why we do that is because true salvation is evidenced by both faith and works of righteousness. James says, if you say you have faith but you have no works, it is profitless. It's useless. When you have a true, genuine faith, it will be evidenced by the work that you do, the change in your life, the things that matter to you. Without faith, there can be no repentance because faith is what enables you to believe that what God's word says about sin and dead works is true. Faith is the motivator for our repentance. But when we truly have faith, when we say, God, for the first time in my life, I'm giving you my heart. I'm going to agree with what you say. Then what happens is we say, I believe, therefore I repent. I believe, therefore I turn from striving from dead works to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. I might be able to afford a big house or a luxury vacation. I might be able to afford many nice things in this life, but that's not why I wake up in the morning. As a child of God, why I wake up in the morning is I wake up to make Jesus famous wherever I go. The reason why I breathe is to release his presence upon whomever he desires for me to encounter that day. Maybe you're here today and as we're talking about just the nature of our hearts, the reason why we live, if, you're, if your heart burns for a vacation home more than your heavenly home, there's need for repentance. If your heart yearns for the latest home decor, to decorate your home in, in splendor and splendor and nice fashionable things, but you're neglecting God's home, which is in your heart, there's a need for repentance. If you're striving for things that are temporal and not eternal, there is a need for repentance. If you're afraid to share the gospel, there's need for repentance. Paul says, I'm not ashamed for the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God at work in the hearts of those who believe. God wants to raise up a bold people who are solely dedicated to him, who love him with all their heart, their soul, their mind, and their strength. But the thing about repentance is that you can't repent until you trust that God's purpose and plan for your life is greater than the one you have for yourself. You can't truly repent until you trust God with all your heart. You trust his word. And the beauty of repentance is the more we repent, the more we get rid of these things in our lives that get away or get in the way of the will of God for us, is the more we repent, the more Jesus can shine through us. And the more God that shines through us, the more influences we, we remove that try to snuff out the light, the greater the f- flames that burn in our hearts can push back the dark in our lives. The greater the power of the gospel can be at work drawing lost souls to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as we just kind of go into a time of response and prayer. And I just want you to Get real before the Lord. This is the great thing about the church gathering. It's not about condemnation. It's not about feeling bad. It's about being set free so you can become everything that Christ has purposed for you to be. God wants you to lay down your sin so he can lift you up. 
God wants you to give him your heart so he can wrap you in his. Maybe you're here today and you've never begun a relationship with Christ. You maybe have attended church your whole life or off and on, but there's never been a moment where you knelt on your knees, you called out to God, and you invited him to live in your heart. You invited the Spirit of God to come in because you're claiming Jesus as Lord where you're asking him to forgive you of your sin and you need a relationship with God today. In just a moment, when we stand, I'm going to invite you to come down and we'll pray together and you'll begin the greatest journey you could ever have by trusting in the Lord. Maybe you're here and you have a relationship with God. Ask yourself this question, what's in your life that you need to repent of? We all have areas of our lives every one of us. What's in your life that you need to change? What have you been believing about your life that's in, not in agreement with God, that's getting in the way of what God desires for your life? What desires have been ruling over you that you need to put to death so that your heart can beat with God's? Maybe you're here today and you honestly, you're like, you know, Pastor Joey, I know I have sin, but honestly, right now, I don't know what I need to repent of. I, I can't think. There's nothing in my mind that's happening. That's the beauty of a relationship with the Holy Spirit, because He will lead you. He'll teach you if you ask. So maybe for you, it's just coming down and saying, God, search my heart. Know my wicked thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me on the path of everlasting. Point out what's in me that's getting in the way of what you want from me so that I can give you more of my heart and live for a greater purpose for your honor and your glory. The next few moments, we're just going to enter this time of response. As the music is playing and Tony will begin to lead us. When we stand, I invite you to come forward and pray. If you need to trust Christ, you need to begin a relationship with God, come and meet me down front. And we'll pray together and then we'll rejoice together. But for the next few moments, you respond to what God is laying on your heart. Heavenly Father, God, we lift you up in this place. Holy Spirit, I pray that you draw every heart. God, we could easily pray in our seats, but that's safe. It takes a step of faith to step out and say, you know what? I'm going to respond. I'm going to come. And there's something magical. There's something powerful that happens when we take that step of faith and we, we, we make a public declaration. We make a public move, God. There's something that happens in us when we respond by publicly professing a need for you to do a work in our lives. So I pray, God, that you wouldn't let fear keep us in our seats. You wouldn't let shame hang our heads. But with joyful expectation, God, we would believe that if we ask your forgiveness, you will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus will be applied to our account, and we will stand from our point of confession as pure, spotless, holy, free, and forgiven. And we can worship you even the more because of that work in our lives. Lord, we just give our hearts to you in this moment. Holy Spirit, do your work. In Jesus' name.